Bueno, bueno. Here it is, the first episode of Chismes y Chinguanerias. I am Ruby Hernandez, and I am the host of this podcast. This is the, the first episode, and I want to set a tone for the podcast. And the tone is going to be, where does resilience come from? Do we learn to be resilient? Are we taught to be resilient? Is resiliency innate to some of us, but not all of us? So I'm going to try to answer that how I think I'm resilient, but I'm not a psychologist. I'm not, you know, everything I come from, everything I know comes from knowledge and experience, not expertise. So here it is. I do come from a long lineage of badass women. When you think of the word chingona, And, you know, women that will leave you with your mouth open with the amount of, you know, bullshit they've, uh, insurmountable amount of stuff that my, my grandma and my mother kind of experienced, lived, overcame, and my, my grandmother specifically overcame so much, so gracefully. And she was such a generous, beautiful soul that advocated for justice and kindness. Um, she was tough. Uh, una mujer ranchera. You know, she used to, she, ma she managed all her cattle, her land, ranches, pretty much by herself with the help of her children. Um, she was a single woman. Her husband was killed when she was only 37, 38 years old. And she already had eight kids and managed to raise them um, all. As a single mom in the, in the 60s, her husband was killed in 64, I believe, 64, 65. Um, she never remarried and After my grandfather's death, his children, children that were, that were made out of wedlock, would make their way to her house and she helped raise them. And just, she was a beautiful person, like a beautiful person. Um, that's my grandmother. That, that's the example my mother was raised with. And my mother, in her own way, has also been very successful, very optimistic, um, you know, a, just a force to be reckoned with in, in life. And I do think watching, experiencing women like this made that the standard for me. The standard for me was... Not to sit there 
and play victim, not to pity myself. You know, it was to welcome challenges, to overcome them. It, that was just my attitude. And I remember that. I remember that being instilled into me. Things like, yo no crié pendejas. Yo no tuve hijas pendejas. Um, yo tuve puros hijos chingones. Those are things that my mom would say, you know, probably when we disappointed her or, or ticked her off or, you know, maybe said something that was kind of annoying. But it was, it was very clear that we had, there was high expectations for us. And when I say us, it's who I was raised with, which is my brother and my sister, um, who are amazing individuals that I love more than more than words can tell but the three of us have this the three of us have resilience the three of us have perseverance the three of us are undeniably different and you know that that's the example so I'm kind of going into some of it was my my environment my upbringing what was innate to me because it's all I knew and all I saw. And now I want to change that answer into the environmental, right? Pivot points in my life. When um, I was a freshman in high school, December of 2012, my parents were arrested, both of them. It wasn't just my mom, wasn't just my dad. Both of my parents were arrested. And the counts against them were, you know, the serious federal drug trafficking charges. But my parents were out on bail and attorneys guaranteed us that the evidence against my parents was very weak and that they would be home any day. So this just seemed like a a bad, a bad experience at the time. Maybe we discarded it as wasteful spending on attorneys. But that changed. In January of 2004, after my parents had been going to trial for about a year, a little over a year, the day before the verdict, the attorneys told my parents you have a 50-50 chance of possibly going home. And my parents weighed out their options, showed up to the verdict, and were found guilty of all their counts. And there was two additional counts tacked on a few weeks before the, the verdict. Everything they were found guilty on all charges. And I was at home in Dinuba with my sister, America, waiting for the verdict. So I was 14, 14 or 15 at, at the time. And I was just sitting there on the couch. And my sister got a call. And I just remember my sister asking, what do you mean they're going to stay? And she took a deep breath 
and then she started crying. And in that very moment, I had no idea what had just happened. I just knew it wasn't good. I've never been good at expressing emotion. I was overwhelmed with all my sister's emotions. I remember I got up from the living room and I walked to my room. I remember I stood at the door and I stared into my room. And this was an actual thought. I remember thinking, I have no idea what my life is going to look like from this moment forward. And I really didn't. The next few weeks were a blur. We packed not just my life, my parents' life, you know, 20 years worth of stuff away, and we put it in storage. I remember having lunch with my siblings and this very loud, opinionated, hard-headed, stubborn kid sat there and quietly agreed to my siblings deciding that it was best that I go live with my brother across the country in Cambridge, Massachusetts, while my brother was a full-time student at Harvard. And I was just caught up in a whirlwind of denial. And it just felt like a bad dream. But I just agreed, and I felt like I was just going with the motions. So we made our way to Cambridge, and that's where it all That's where my life took a big shift when I realized that everything I had ever known, my home, my pets, my parents, my friends, my school, my community, everything was pulled from under me, except my siblings, right? And they graciously... My brother graciously stepped in without any hesitation and, you know, did whatever he needed to do to help me transition, help me assimilate, whatever we were trying to do at the time. And I remember, (laughs) I remember clearly having this thought. Because I was a little badass, you know, like I never expressed fear or, I mean, any kind of pansy thoughts. It was just not in my nature to express them. But I remember being on that airplane by myself and just kind of thinking, I'm flying across the country by myself. And my mom's voice crossed crossed my mind. You know, when my mom and me used to fight and bicker when I was little. And I would tell her things like, you know, I'm going to call the cops on you. She would hit me. Um, And she would tell me, call the cops. Call them. I'm your mother. 
I created you and it's my duty to put up with you. No one else will, will tolerate your shitty attitude. Nadie más te va a soportar ni te va a aguantar tus pinches mal genios. And of course, I put the phone down because <laughs> there was some logic to that. On that airplane ride to Boston, I remember thinking, God, my mom was right. No one else is going to put up with my shitty attitude. And this lifelong rebel kind of, I quieted down. I tried to not ruffle feathers and I kept my head down and I started, started focusing and started maturing and I, I was still lost in that space, but that was a big shift, a big shift for me in that I lost my safety net. I lost all my comfort and everything I knew, and I was starting from scratch. I was just a kid. You know, that, that, that went on to several, well, maybe a whole other year. It took me a whole year. I was in, a, I was in denial for an entire year that my parents would come home and I kind of dropped out of school and kept bouncing around and I didn't like the colors of a mascot. I had asked to get withdrawn from school. There was just a lot of immaturity that was still happening. I remember getting enrolled, going to Southgate High School with my sister for like a day or two, Linwood High School for maybe a couple weeks, if that, and coming home from school and telling my brother, I'm not going to go to school anymore. If, if, if I add up the amount of months I was dropped out of high school, I probably missed a whole year of high school. That's just how it happened. I still managed to graduate early, top of my class, because that's how I do it. But I don't know how I, I, I don't, I, I can't even fathom the idea of my kids taking a year off of high school. But I did it. And high school was um, interesting for me. You know, there was a lot of shift. A lot of shift, a lot of change, you know, but to circle back, like that is the transformation. That is, that is where my identity of resilience is that failure was never an option and there was always something good to focus on and anger always fueled me. I remember when my mom called me. Not only had they now been convicted, we were waiting for their sentence. And there was a lot of hope. There was a lot of hope and optimism around their sentencing day because we were going to request for reduced, a reduced sentence. We were going to re request um, a new trial. There was a lot of things that were happening at the time of their sentencing. And there was just a lot of things up in the air waiting for this moment. And this happened January of 2005. 
And I remember my mom calling me to talk to my brother, and my brother seemed a little emotional. But, you know, that just meant that he, his eyes were maybe moving a little bit more than normal, but he didn't express emotion. And then my mom asked to speak to me. It was after their sentencing hearing. And my mom, my mom's voice was shaking and she quivered through it. And I remember she said, Pues que te digo, Prietita? Nos sentenciaron a 27 años a hacerles a estos perros. And she started crying. And my answer, when I look back and think about it, was amazing. The only thing I could think of doing in that very moment was to comfort her. And I told my mom, like, mami, usted no se ponga triste. Eso nos da nosotros mucho tiempo para hacer nuestras vidas, acomodarnos, y el día que usted salga, no va a tener que preocuparse por nada. In that moment, I didn't know what I would have to do what I was going to live through, how I was going to do it. But I knew I had a long time to figure it out. And in my mom's worst moment, and probably one of my worst moments as well, the thing I thought to do was to comfort my mother because she was completely out of control of her situation and her circumstances, but I could change mine. And I focused on that. I, I always focused on what can I do? What can I do to make this better? And that's a self-reflective of my attitude, the resilience. Now, I don't really know how to conclude this or how to close this. But that's just a snippet to set the theme of every situation I've ever encountered when life threw me things that were completely out of control. They became moments that created enormous momentum and sadness and anger and trauma and tragedy has constantly fueled the machine behind my motivation and being so intentional about life. And it's been a beautiful blessing to have so many crazy things happen that constantly reset, reset my mindset into, I can get through this. Oh, things got bad? Well, things will get better. And I will end with this. My favorite quote, my favorite quote that has continually inspired me throughout my life since I was first introduced to it in late 2004 was, 
a quote by Rigoberta Minchu, where she said, La capacidad más grande que tengo en la vida es la capacidad de soñar. En situaciones difíciles y complejas, he sido capaz de soñar con un futuro más hermoso. Y con eso, me despido. Thanks for listening.